Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of the Andy J Podcast. A very special episode today because unlike most shows where we have uh, two or three guests, sometimes even four celebrity guests, this week there's just one. And that is Mr. Richard Hammond. I'm delighted that I've had a whole hour with Richard Hammond because he completes the hat trick now. If you are a regular listener to the show, you'll know that middle of uh, last year, 2020, we had an hour with James May, slightly more than that, in fact. And just before Christmas, we had an hour with Jeremy Clarkson. So to complete the Grand Tour Top Gear Legends conversations, Richard Hammond was very cool and was happy to oblige by giving me a whole hour of his time just the other day. So here we go. This is an hour with Richard Hammond. And incidentally, if you're new to this pod, thank you very much for your company. Check out our back catalogue of celebrity conversations. If it's just cars you're into, we have a car skewing uh, automotive podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, which has lots of cool big celebrity names that love their cars. But if you're here for the celebrity chat, well, I think you'll find all kinds of very, very cool, big, big UK-based celebrities across our episodes. So do check out our back catalogue as well. For now, though, let's dive straight in with Richard Hammond. The Andy J Podcast. This is a huge moment. I am elated to welcome my very special guest for the entire hour. It is the one and only Mr. Richard Hammond. How are you doing, Richard? I'm, very, I'm better for that. I've never triggered elation before. It's a new one for me. I like it. <laughs> I'd, I'd like to think that that goes ahead of me where I get it doesn't. Let's be clear. Very nice to see you. It's, do you know what? It's, what is lovely here, Richard, is I thought we were going to be doing this over the phone, and, but we're actually connecting via the power of Zoom. Yeah, we're very modern, you know. Well, I live on Zoom now. I, I, I don't know what's going to be like talking to people face to face. It's going to be strange. You're huge and sort of lumpy and bumpy and three dimensional. <laughs> Do you think handshakes and hugs will come back, or is that done? Yeah, it's done. I, that doesn't. You see, that never troubled me. Okay. I'm British, therefore I don't. I don't really like you know contact. <laughs> I, I, I have to stop. I don't have to do air kissing anymore, which I've always hated. I don't like that. I, I never have to. I, I dread it. I dread. I dread saying goodbye. When you have to, you, you, you've all been at a, a party together or what have you, you've got to say goodbye and you've got to shake hands and kiss faces. Yeah. I'm very happy not to do that because I'm British. Well, how have you mastered the goodbye on the Zoom? Because I find that's very confusing. You know, there's, there's the kind of prolonged goodbye. Okay, are, we, are you are you ending the meeting now or shall I? Do you no, I just bail. Do you? I, I just bail. I, 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 with phone calls the same because when did it become the thing? Well, I'll get sidetracked here, mate. But when did it become the thing? To end a phone call, and I've got I've just, people I know well do it. You hear them, you overhear their conversation. They get into the end and they say, anyway, okay, bye, 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 bye. I like to just go, bye, gone. <laughs> you Out. see, I'm always slightly affronted when that happens to me. I'm a prolonged goodbyer, but I guess it's, no, um, it, it kind of harks back to those teenage days where, you know, oh, no, you hang up. No, you hang up, you know, the whole... Yeah, it does a bit. 
No, I think it all smacks of, bye, I'm letting you down slowly. How will you cope without me? Bye, you'll be all right. Bye, you'll be okay. Bye, I'll let, bye. out of there. I'm, I'm, I'm not a prolonged goodbye. I'm a, that's it, slam, out of there. Love it. Love it. Well, look, Richard, uh, we're here, obviously, that we're going to have, we've got an hour, we can chat about all kinds of things. But one of the big chats we're going to have shortly is about the new show, The Great Escapists. I've seen all six episodes. It's out now. I binged it. I'll be honest with you. I was lucky enough to be send a link early doors, which had my name. And you watched the lot. I've seen all of them. (laughs) I've seen all of them because we've got an hour. I mean, you know, yeah. I can't just well, you have needed a, some material. I can't just have a couple of lines about it and hope for the best. I imagine you've had a few interviews in the last kind of couple of days or so where people have got the top line, oh, desert island and stuff, and that's about it. Pop science, maybe, and the name of your co-host. Yeah. But now I've, I've got to, I've got to know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, what's the point? A, a brief interviewer—that's a whole new experience. I'm not sure I like it. I'm <laughs> suddenly scared. Well, you were one yourself. Let's be fair. Can we? Can we? I, I obviously have a lot to talk about for the new show. But before we do all that, can we have a bit of a chat about you and life, the world, and everything? Are you cool with that? Please do. I'm not going anywhere. Hooray! Can we? Can we go right back to the start then? Solly Hull, eldest of three boys. Yeah. How much can Rummy you remember lad. of your of your childhood? Well, I was very young at the beginning of it, obviously. Um, yeah, I mean, I was raised in Birmingham, in sort of suburbia, on the outskirts of Birmingham, a place called Shirley, lovely. We had a, had a, a, a restaurant, the Shirley Temple. That's still there, I believe. Um, yeah, it was, I, and I kind of, I, I think broadcasting beckoned the darling. Uh, I used to do imaginary pieces to camera in the garden when I was about six. But I didn't really know that it was TV that I wanted to do and radio that I wanted to do. Um, and eventually ended up after I was, there was a suggestion made that I should leave sixth form. And oh. it was made by the school that maybe I want to go somewhere else, anywhere else. By then we'd moved north. I was living in Ripon, North Yorkshire. And they decided that perhaps it would be better if I didn't trouble them anymore. Was so, this, was uh, this Ripon, uh, do you mean expelled? Was, was this Ripon grammar? Well, yeah, but you see, expelled sounds quite heroic. It sounds <laughs> like I was like the really big, naughty kid at the school. I, well, I was just annoying. I think I just irritated my way out of sixth form. I didn't, it's not, some people have got expelled. Did you finish school? Were you booted out? Did you, I, did no, you I did. Through? I did finish school and I did the whole uni thing, university thing and everything. So yeah, oh. no, I, I didn't get kicked yeah. out, I'm afraid. You're clever, that's cheating. No, 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 no. Definitely no brains. I mean, pure blag. Okay. 100% Good, blag. that's good. Excellent. That's the only way to go. Well, I'd, I'd sort of, I'd, I'd stayed on to sixth form. Well, I would actually, I'd been to school, a boys' school in Salihar. Um, and then I went to a co-ed school in the last year. We moved north okay. in the year I sat my GCSEs, or GCEs as they were in those days, O-levels. And um, oh, as a result, I didn't entirely concentrate on my exams as much as perhaps I might have done. Because of the ladies. Scraped through into the sixth, yeah. yeah. Scraped through into the sixth form. <laughs> and then um, it became apparent that I wasn't entirely focused on the task at hand. And the school suggested I might like to drift off and do something else somewhere else so if this was else. if this was a newspaper headline would it be hammond expelled for womanizing no no it wasn't <laughs> no again there's nothing heroic in, in my i've got i've, I've chatted to lots of people who have, i was expelled because i set fire to the headmaster's car or something you know a bit yeah. no, i was just annoying i was simply annoying that was it well, I, I wasn't standout i was just an irritant and if i was a teacher and if you are a teacher, I know you're having a rough time at the moment. What I'm about to describe is what you'd love more than anything else to do, which is to sit in the staff room with your colleagues moaning about pupils, but you don't get to do that now. Um, but yeah, if I was a teacher and I had to go in every day and face the little irritant at the back of the class with 
smart aleck comment, just being annoying. Uh, they had enough. So they said I should go somewhere else. And I went off to Harrogate um, College of Arts and Technology to do audiovisual communications. This is before media was really a thing. Yeah. If you went to careers advice, what do you want to be? You'd be like a fireman, a postman, or a business army, or, or a lawyer. There was, was no media as such. Uh, but I, that's what I did. And I did a lot of painting and a lot of photography. And I went straight into radio. So I was obviously not very good at either visual medium. Um, and so, so radio, I was working in from 1988, BBC Radio York. You, I mean, you've done masses of radio. This is, um, to be fair, yeah. starting a radio age 18, that's pretty yeah. huge. It's not, everyone thinks, oh yeah, well, you just get a job. It's not easy, especially on no. air at 18 to get your own show. I mean, that's... Well, yeah, that was, I was as a reporter. So I was going out in the days when you used to use a ewer. You're too young, you won't remember them. But they weigh as much as a small car. It's a quarter-inch reel-to-reel tape recorder. Oh, with the old splicing it together. Yes, it's called editing. Yeah. yeah. Many years later, about 10, 20 years later, I was was filling in. A mate was running BBC Radio Oxford, and he rang and said, oh, can you fill in for a week on this show? I was doing top gear at the time. And I said, yeah, go on, it'll be a love. I love it. I love radio. And the day one I was there, I'd interviewed somebody, by which time it was all digital and complex. I don't know how to edit it on a computer. So I laid off the interview onto, laid off, see, already I'm old-fashioned, onto quarter-inch reel-to-reel on a Tascam, which is a type of deck. And I was sitting in the newsroom, splicing it. So the tape runs through in front of you. You can see it going through, and you listen to the bit where you want to stop, where usually the interviewee starts saying, uh. So you get to, uh. On the, and then you put a little mark with a China graph pen. Yep. And then you roll it along to where he finishes going. And then you put a little mark. And then you cut that bit out physically with a razor blade and you tape it together. Yep. That's editing. That's yep. why it's called a cut. And I looked up and the entire newsroom was gathered around me staring, dumbfounded. What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm editing. They'd never seen it, even at college. They'd never encountered it. But I was doing that from 17, 18 interviews. And then at 18, I did my first ever live show which on that station, they did a thing called Last Week in North Yorkshire, which was on a Sunday afternoon, at 12 o'clock on a Sunday. And it was a sort of look back across the week's broadcasting on BBC Radio York. And that was the Nursery Slope show. So at 18, I was sitting in cubicle 1B downstairs nice. at BBC Radio York. And it was a big old analog desk. You didn't have anybody to look after. You drove the desk yourself. It was huge, about eight feet across, covered in faders and pots. And under like an emergency flap in the center of the desk, we lifted this up and there was a series of big red buttons that looked like emergency buttons. And if you pressed the one that correlated with the studio you were in, your desk was live. Brilliant. So at, at four minutes past 12 on Sunday, the whatever, January 1988, I pulled the fader open that had the news desk on it. So that was playing through my desk. And then I hit the button and my desk was live. And I was sitting there looking at it thinking, I'm now in charge. <laughs> what I do on this desk, and there were a lot of listeners to Radio York in those days. It was huge. Uh, I, I'm driving it, and um, I messed it up completely. Did you? Can you remember? Yeah. Can you can you remember how you felt as you were about to press? Was there was it sweaty palms? Was your heart beat up? Oh man, I was just beyond scared. It was uh, incredibly. I was excited, but also scared. So it, they came out the news. They said, That's the news of weather for BBC Radio North Yorkshire. It's five past twelve, and then I had to fire the first jingle off the back of that. So nice. I hit the fader, uh, which was from memory on my right. The fader on my right. BBC Radio York, and then pull my mic live, and, and I've got it on cassette tape. And you are never 
listening to it. <laughs> and I played, I played Papa was a Rolling Stone. That starts out, da, 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 and I'm talking over to try and hit the bridge in the music. And you hear me say, hello, welcome to the last week in North Yorkshire. I'm Richard Hammond Williams, till one o'clock. Um, and then I, I've encouraged people to phone in. But these are the days when you didn't have an assistant in the studio. You had to answer the phone yourself Brilliant. while the records were Brilliant. on. Brilliant, yep. So, unfortunately, I left my microphone open. So then you hear me go, hello, hello. to somebody's <laughs> off mic. Hello, thank you for calling. Okay, I'll be with you. And then you hear, oh. And then you hear me, you can hear my brain thinking. And then I come back on mic. So, thank you, I'll be with you. Oh, and that's the first caller. You could be the next. Call now on. <laughs> it was, oh, yeah. Incredibly exciting, though. A real privilege. I, I don't know if that still happens, if you still get the chance to do that. But to be thrown in at the deep end like that was just... I was a lucky boy. That's wonderful. And it, it kind of reminds me of the sort of times I've always been of the opinion. I mean, I've been broadcasting now 24 years and I've always been of the opinion that, you know, you get the first three or four words out, then you're fine. But there's still, I don't know if you get this anymore. I'm sure you don't because of you're Richard Hammond. But, you know, particularly live, there's still that thing in the back of my head, which is I am going to get the first three or four words out though, right? You know, oh yeah, until you start it. But that's that's why you do it. It's why I love live. It's why I love radio. I love radio because the content comes first. It's what's in the box, not the box itself. Yeah. And that's what I love about radio. It's more expansive. There's more time. You can explore ideas, return to ideas, toy with ideas. It's, it's, it's great for that. Um, but the buzz of doing that never goes away. No, it's 30, well, 33 years ago now it started. And still, just before you go live, there is, if you don't feel that flutter of excitement, why are you doing it? But once it's begun, I'm more comfortable in a radio studio than I am sitting in my armchair in front of the television at home. It's just my favorite place to be. That's I really miss doing radio. It's a great place to be. You should do it. I mean, especially with the whole lockdown stuff. I mean, who knows when we're coming out of it? Everyone keeps telling us it'll be next week and it's not. So, I mean, why don't you? You've got a bit of time. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to start my own radio station. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> the people do part, I don't know. I rather I'm 51. Think I don't know how the technology works. <laughs> there's, quite, there's quite a few people who I, I'm pretty sure would bust a gut to get you on air. That's a great medium, I think. And, and also, it's kind of direct. And at times like this, because it's not burdened with, I mean, I don't, I love television. This show I'm talking about today was made by my own production company. I'm not knocking TV. It has its place. It's a fabulous medium. But radio is a means of just exploring ideas collectively, I think is far more powerful and more immediate because it is so direct because it's just human voices exchanging ideas, freed from all the baggage of how those ideas look or are presented visually or any of that. It's just the pure, simple, just the pit of it just the actual center of the idea yeah it's voice and listener isn't it and then see what happens yeah. and the, the 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 lessons you learn at the very beginning for me it was 32 years ago being told by alan greenson barry stockdale chris Choi, some of whom are still working in the media chris Choi is uh, itn isn't he um they would say you know you're talking to one person and you are yeah and it's still i grind my teeth when you hear some hello everyone and I'm thinking, I'm in, I'm in my car. Yeah. What do you mean, everyone? There's me. You only listen to the radio. Even if you're in a crowd of 10,000 people all listening to it in the same room, you listen to it and engage with it alone. It's a single, solitary activity. And mm. you're speaking, therefore. I'm talking to one person. That's what you do. Do you feel that's different with telly? Because it, it's so interesting to hear <laughs> about your radio background. Because when you look at yourself and the other two from, obviously, the Grand Tour, etc., you clearly have the most... Um, 
entertainment background. You know what I mean? As in, as in, Jeremy's very clearly a writer who who is who's gone into cars and loves cars. James, obviously, cars, cars, cars. It's obviously changed as time's gone by, but from the early days, you obviously have a broader passion and experience. It's more entertainment as well as a love for cars. Yeah, and I, and I think the sort of collective experience. There's me saying you listen to these things singly, and you do. Um, but there is something, I, I love the idea of pulling together in pursuit of something, whether that's yeah, when I was presenting a radio show. And it does become, and you'll know this, it does occasionally become a bit frustrating that you sit there and lots of people come into the studio to talk to you about the exciting things they've been doing and you're thinking, wait a minute, I've just been sitting here. You've written a book, you've made a travel show about Tibet, you've done this, you've done that, I'm, I'm just talking to you about it. But um, that process of, of exploring those things is... is um, is great fun. I do love that entertainment side of it, yes. And I think there's still and always shall be a place for scheduled broadcasting, whether that's radio or television. I mean, the shows I'm making are by and large now for video-on-demand platform, Amazon, which you know, my daughters grew up, the idea for them of switching on the television or even the radio and just listening to what somebody wants to serve up to you at that time is ridiculous. They, they bad, listen to it? what they want, when they want. But there will always be a place for that scheduled linear broadcasting, for that place where you go in to share the experience with other people. Mm. If you're watching television, the same lights will be flickering out of the window of the house over the road. Or if you're listening to the radio and somebody says something that you don't find funny or shocking, but you know your auntie's going to be listening, and she will. And it, it's that connectivity. I don't think that'll ever go away. In fact, I think it'll probably come back with a little more force, perhaps even as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, well... Um, I think anything that, that, that binds us together and we, we're sharing, we'll be glad of. And the community factor of it as well, Richard. You know, I'd, I, I'll never forget being stuck on a traffic jam somewhere, M1, wherever it might be, you know, stationary, and you glance over in the car next to you is clearly listening to the same song on the same yeah, radio. That's all you, that, yeah, that's all it's a simple thing, but it's a, it's a really good feeling. And I, you know, we are the consumers. We will get what we want. It's a commercial world. People will realize there's a market for these things, uh, and therefore they will supply that market. And I think we will always want to have that shared broadcasting experience. Yeah. No, that said, it's rather nice when you are employed by video-on-demand services like Amazon because clearly they have monumental budgets. And what you, it's a different thing. You're making a different thing. Yeah. You're making something that can be watched whenever and repeatedly. So it's got to be big. It's got to be glossy. It's got to, it's got to have all of those, those factors that, that make it something of value that has a life. Hence, you know, we made a, a with Great Escapist, we made a pop science show, but rather than stand on a wet and windy airfield somewhere showing a, a model we've made of something as big as my hand, we had to go somewhere that was a visual feast and had ambition and scale. And that's still, that's still valid. That's still a great thing to, to pursue. It's a different type of broadcasting. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And it's, it's interesting because, I mean, how much did, did young Richard aged 18, aged 19, you know, starting out on the radio, getting your first groove. You moved around the radio networks as well, didn't you? You went to Newcastle as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what does that tell you? <laughs> it, t- it tells me you're... I, got, <laughs> you're I was improved. moved around. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll go with that. We'll go with that. Well, you kept going, you know, fair's fair. Yeah. But how much of you, when you were doing that, because everyone looks to the stars, don't they? Especially in performing, be it, you know, TV or acting or radio or whatever, everyone thinks, oh, I wonder what the top of the tree feels like. How much have you thought, 
well, do you know what? Give this a few years. And it was a really fast ascension, if you don't mind me saying, by the way. Give this a few years and I'm going to be a household name pretty much everywhere. No. Um, I mean, I love the work. And you say fast ascension. It wasn't. I mean, I started in 88. I uh, worked in local radio and I, I did BBC, all BBC local stations, Radio York, Radio Cleveland, Radio Leeds, Radio Newcastle, Radio yeah. Cumbria. Okay, fair um, enough. You're, you're, you're and 20 apprenticeship. <laughs> radio Lancashire. Um, and by mid-90s, it was clear, you know, a little brummy living in the north, to get opportunities to do bigger radio programmes and to do television, both of which I wanted to do, that opportunity was not going to be there for me because in those days, everything was centred on London. And like a lot of people, what I couldn't afford to do, I wasn't from London, and I certainly couldn't afford to say, oh, well, I'll just go and live in London on the off chance, because I couldn't afford it. I was living in bedsits all over the north of England, working in local radio. So as, as my cunning plan, and it was a bit high risk, I jumped out of broadcasting. Cough, hold on. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I, I thought, well, I wanted to, to I, I really wanted to do car shows. Top Gear was my favourite show. Well, if I get a job in the press office of one of the, the car manufacturers, I'll get to know the editors of all the car shows. Nice. And this sounds ridiculous because it was such, oh, come on, that's never going to work. So I applied for, from the newspaper, and got a job as an assistant press officer at Renault UK, based down in Denham, uh, which is the outskirts of London, N25. Uh, I got the job and did that for 18 months and sure enough, got to know the editors of all the, the car shows on television, including a guy called Peter Baker, who ran Granada Men and Motors, the motor inside of it, yeah. uh, which if, if you recall was a really high end um, <laughs> you know, intellectual platform for rigorous debate and topless weather forecasts in the evening. But in the day, it was car based. And I did... He said, well, yeah, you can come and work for me. I can't guarantee you a day a week, but hopefully you'll get that. It was £120 a day, I think, from memory. Okay. Might not be that much, but possibly one day a week, possibly two days a month. Um, so I gave back my company car and um, handed back the only grown-up job I've ever had. I had a pension, everything. Wow. I was, rub I was rubbish at it. <laughs> I mean, Beyond awful. Have you ever worked outside of the media? No. No. It's, it's <laughs> proper, proper jobs. It's really hard. You have to, like, work for a living. And I, I, just, yeah. I was no good at it. Um, so I bailed back out and back into broadcasting and started doing stuff on Granada Men and Motors. But, I mean, I did that for about seven years before the audition for Top Gear came along. And I'd auditioned for countless other shows. By then I was doing... Um, a live weekend show, Saturday and Sunday mornings, on Granada Breeze. Right. Which was another small, this is digital before anything like the proliferation of channels have seen. Yeah. So, but this wasn't satellite, it was early digital TV, so it was, it was cheap. And I was doing a sort of sawn-off version of This Morning on Saturday and Sunday mornings. And weirdly, quite a lot of people, Simon Rimmer, he was my chef on it. Okay. Um, he came with the show, actually, he was on it before I was. And now does Sunday brunch, doesn't he? Um, Yvette Fielding used to be on it. Derek Akura used to do Psychic. So, of course oh, he did. Terrible. Of course he did. That was <laughs> that was terrible. Yeah, but right. So they'd, they'd run into financial trouble with the channel, 
because there wasn't a lot of money to keep it going. And I'd done this for a couple of years. I used to ride on my motorcycle from Wendover, where I lived on the outskirts of London, up to Manchester to Granada TV every Sunday, Saturday morning. It's a long way. Um, and do this show, and then back down, and then back up on a Sunday. It was about three hours long, and it That's was amazing. everything from everything from sofa throws to cooking to whatever. And Derek Curl used to be one of the experts that we, we circulated, and he'd do, you know, people would ring in, and he'd tell them stuff. And uh, one day we were called into the main building and they said, oh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, boys and girls, really sorry, everybody, but a uh, bit of bad news for you. Uh, we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to shut the channel down. And there was a big pause, big silence, at which point I couldn't help myself. I turned to Derek and said, well, you'll be all right, mate. You'll have seen that one coming. You'll have something <laughs> yeah. lined up, won't you? And he was, wasn't, very, wasn't very pleased with me. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. But I'd been doing that for years before the audition came up for Top Gear. So it was it was far from being a fast climb. It was a sort of steady, slow slog. And just another example of you've got to keep going and have the luck. Right. Because there's an element of right place, right time, a lot of that. Um, a lot of stars have to align before you're lucky enough to be there at the moment when the opportunity comes up and you happen to recruit the experience necessary to be able to meet that and to move on from there. So I was just a lucky boy. So you were I mean, basically... I have been very lucky. In your, in, your, in your foundation years then, let's call them, you were basically acquiring the tools to be able to step into the big roles and go, yeah, I know what I'm doing here. Yeah, I served my time. I uh, served my <laughs> apprenticeship. It, it is though, isn't it? It basically is. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> yeah, it is. I, I think it is. I think... I, I think broadcasting, radio and TV, there are, there are skills to it. I'm, it's not, I'm not saying it's a proper job. Both of my brothers have proper jobs. All of my friends, I don't live in the Cotswolds with all the other television people and, and, and financial people. I live out further west in Herefordshire. So my friends all do proper jobs, whether they're farmers, agronomists, builders, quantity surveyors, businessmen, whatever they do, they have proper jobs with proper skills. I'm, I'm pushing it to try and put my work alongside theirs as something that is a demonstrable skill. Uh, but nevertheless, there, there are some skills, there are some knacks to, to broadcasting, I think, that make it work better. Um, and yeah, I spent a long time trying to learn some of them <laughs> so, so that when I was lucky enough. This is so easy, Richard. You're, 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 you're so humble. And it's, I've, I've had the sort of privilege of chatting now. I had an hour with James. I had an hour with Jeremy. And, and, and so you're my, the final piece of the crown, as it were. And, and it's funny, I spoke to obviously friends about prior to chatting to each one of you and the consistent message that came through about you from people that know you or the people that have, have watched you was every single person was like, oh, you'll love that. He's the nice one. He's the nice one. It just continued to come through. It's <laughs> not much everyone. of a competition, is it, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, um, I think it's really important that whatever path we're lucky enough to be blessed with the opportunity to take and I it's being aware of that luck and I think it's really important and that it doesn't matter what you do mm. or what your job is I think it's, it, it should all be measured according to your own measures of success that's the key thing isn't it are, are you convinced is your mind easy with your own measurement of success and your own achievement towards that and what's what's that for you then um, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm 50. I'm having a massive midlife crisis. I'll change my mind by next week. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, my successes would be uh, my, my daughters, um, my, my family life. 
I, I, I don't. But it's easy for me at, at, at 51 to say, well, I don't measure myself according to work. Well, no, because you're 51. Yeah. Whereas when you're 20, you do. Or some people do. I did. Um, but your, your, your aims, your needs, your goals change. What it takes to make you happy and to feel content totally changes. But how much of that is, so you have acquired as your career has grown and your stature has increased and the profile is huge, etc. You've obviously amassed wealth and property and vehicles and, and the ability mm. to know that you are financially more than stable. You, you will live... If, if you stopped everything right now, um, I'll be as delicate as I can, if you just decided to give up work now, you know that you can live a phenomenal life of luxury for the rest of your days and the next two or three generations in your family, should you so wish that. So... This is what I mean about success. If all that got taken about away... material success. But th- those things are, one, they're always comparative. You're always, however materially successful you are, unless you actually are Bill Gates or any of the other billionaires. And, and then it becomes meaningless. That, the problem is my view of that is always going to be skewed mm. because I've been very lucky and have accrued a, a degree of material wealth, yes. So it's very easy for me to sit here and say it, but I... Certainly speaking from the point of view of my experience along the road, to me, the moment you stop worrying about being able to pay your utility bills, the moment you don't have to fret about your phone bill or how much time you spend on your mobile or how much electricity you use, that really is when you tip over into wealth. Beyond that, it's about trinkets. Okay. It's about, you know, a car is a car is a car, really. Can you afford to get to where you want to be to do what you want to do. Yes, well, that's wealth. Beyond that, what are you going to do in a blue car, a yellow car, an expensive car? It doesn't matter. Um, but that's easy for me to say because I'm not in that position anymore. Um, and I do, I, when I was working in radio, local radio, that's not a particularly well-paid job. And particularly if you're a massive fan of cars and motorcycles as I was and am. So I was always in debt for some stupid motorcycle I bought on a loan. So I was generally living in little downstairs front room bedsits in houses in Carlisle, Leeds, York, Newcastle, um, Cleveland, Middlesbrough. Um, totally flat, stony broke. Completely flat, stony broke. <laughs> I mean, beyond broke. I, I, the, the day arrived when um, I went to Quicksave, it was. It was a supermarket in Clitheroe where I was living at the time again in a little bedsit, to buy my food for the week, and my credit card was refused because it was full. And I thought, well, that's that. That's literally it. Right. There is nothing more. The only option I had was to go to my motorcycle, which I kept in a little shed behind the pub opposite. Um, I'd, I'd managed to blag that. Uh, so I, I opened the door and rode the bike to Accrington and rode around all the dealers and sold it to the one that gave me the most money for it and then walked home to clear the road with the cash to live off. Um, and at, at that stage, I remember looking through the window of an electrical store when <clears throat> they had stereos in it. And this is a day when you, what you wanted was a multi-tiered one, you know, the separate, yep. um, separate hi-fi. And I looked through and just, oh, I imagine that. I would like that more than anything else. And it wasn't until about 20 years later, maybe a bit more, I think it probably was, 24 years later, when I suddenly woke up one morning and thought, wait a minute, the thing I most wanted was a stereo. Was a nice, I'll get a have one now. Cause I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't, it didn't matter to me anymore because right. I could afford it. I didn't want it anymore. And I, I, I don't know what that 
tells me. I don't know what I can learn from that. But I think, well, I suppose it's obvious, isn't it? You always want what you can't have. Yes, I guess so. I mean, I mean you can have it. You don't really want it. Well, what is, I mean, we're going down a path I wasn't anticipating, Richard, but while we're here, we might as well. So I often think back to, excuse me for the reference, but I often think back to the Ken Dodd song about happiness, right? When you come to measure a man's success, don't count money, count happiness. Uh, Are you happy? What is is happiness for you? Moments of happiness, yeah. I mean, I've I've been weirdly throughout lockdown. I've had more time with my family than I've had ever and with my dog. (laughs) Uh, And I derive immense happiness from sitting with my dog on the sofa watching telly. Um, I I think happiness is is something to be pursued and to to be actively pursued and to look for and to try and find. I don't think it's any good sitting there and hoping it just lands in your lap. I don't think it will. I think you can find it in any circumstance. And people have found happiness in the most incredible and impossible circumstances. my wife and I were laughing last night because I, I realised, oh, wait a minute, we are old. Why? We're playing Scrabble with dinner ladies, Victoria Woods dinner ladies on in the background because you don't <laughs> have to concentrate too hard, but the script hey. is so epically good. Yeah. And my dog was curled up next to me on the sofa and I said, oh, this is bliss. Oh, hang on. <laughs> but I, I think you can, equally, I'd be very happy if I could jump in a bowl of Wildcat now and go hooning about a, a Dakar course. Fantastic. I, I think you have to be open to it's I, I don't, yeah, don't imagine I bound out of bed grinning every morning and leap about being happy and annoying. I don't. I don't think anybody does. <laughs> no, people that claim they do that, they, is that every day? Really? Come on. What's in the, what's in the water? Yeah, but do you, do you find it being a radio presenter, host? But you have to be happy when you're doing that. And that, it's, it's kind of an escape. You must find that doing your job you must find that you escape into that program and then well, you wouldn't be miserable in it it wouldn't work it, it, it's so that you can sort of switch on happiness there yeah, well, i know what you mean i mean i'm 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 sort of fortunate that i i consider myself to be a happy person most of the time anyway because i've you know i've got family and i love my kids and and you know all of that stuff you know nothing nothing kind of unique about it just i really really appreciate mm. it and i'm staggeringly grateful for it but um yeah no anyway this isn't about you richard we need to be talking about you uh, can i can we just briefly touch on the top gear days and then obviously yes. i'm desperate to get onto the great escapist because i have really loved the show uh, i'm going to tell you something that that jeremy clarkson said to me and i'd love to get your steer on it And he said that Top Gear wasn't a success and wasn't popular, excuse me for bringing this up, until your big accident, 2006. (laughs) He said that lots of times. It certainly brought it um, a degree of of notoriety. It brought it to the attention of a lot of people around the world. Um, But it was going in a direction. And where Top Gear ended up, and the Grand Tour, we three... For me, the, the most telling thing about it, because it ended up being vast. It was like the biggest factual entertainment show ever. Or something. Mm. 300 and something million people around the world watched it. Um, and I think it wasn't a car show in the end. No, I wouldn't argue that it was. But it retained that at its heart. You know, you didn't have to be a car geek to watch it. You really yeah. didn't. Yeah. But we three are. So we did that bit for you. Because I do think it tapped early into something that shows like Bake Off latterly proved and reinforced. And that is that some enthusiasm is incredibly compelling. I don't care about baking. Why should I really care about whether somebody else can 
baker's chocolate brownie. I'm just not interested. But the fact that they care, I care about that. Right. And I'll watch the show because I'll watch them enthuse about it. Even though I know nothing about it and don't want to. But their enthusiasm is compelling. Yeah, there's a the new BBC show where, where they're, they're grooming dogs. Again, I mean, I have dogs. I don't groom them. I'm not interested in dog grooming, but I'm interested in people who are interested in things. Right. And we benefited from that early on, I'm told you. I'm sure of it. Our sort of obsessive, nerdy geekiness does come through and it is compelling. Listening to three people argue about something about which they collectively know a lot, but you know nothing, is still interesting. And you can you need to pick up the odd bit to get a sense of, right, they're disagreeing. That's great. I can, I can just follow the argument. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. So you, so you're, you're not disagreeing with Jeremy's uh, proclamation about the accident, but you're, but the I'm showing. Just, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it did, it did put it in front of a lot more people. Yes, um, I didn't do it on purpose. No, I'm not going to do it again. Although we, we, we hadn't long been having a conversation because he's, he's had that claim for a while, and I, I think it was going that way anyway. Maybe it accelerated it. But we had been saying on Grand Tour, yeah, we need to make a bit of a noise. And then I crashed again. You but did. again, I didn't, do, I didn't do it on purpose. I'm just a rubbish driver. I think that's the only conclusion to which we can come. I'm not sure that's true, Richard. I mean, I've watched you driving people. Well, there is evidence to support it. Well, <laughs> There is evidence to support it. Uh, yeah, There's but, me flying off a Swiss mountain in a uh, £1.3 million pound electric supercar. Well, not many people are particularly great at 288 miles an hour, and I'm not even sure how fast the uh, the Rimac concept was going, but it, it, was, it wasn't slow up a hill climb. No, actually, the the dragster crash. I did. I was. I touched three hundred and twenty in that. It was doing two hundred and eighty. It was upside down at two hundred and eighty-eight. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just. <laughs> but we did learn a lesson. We learned that just because you're on, you're doing it on TV, doesn't mean you're in a big protective bubble. Things can still and do go wrong, like the tire blows. Do you ever think about them? The, those two kind of landmark crash moments. Do you ever? Not. Not now. No. No, I did for a bit, obviously. And anybody who's, you know, it was acquired brain injury is a very real thing. Um, and it can have very real and lasting effects. And I've chatted to a lot of people who've who've been affected by it, directly or indirectly. Um, and there's an incredible commonality in the pathways to recovery. That sounds like a well-worn phrase, doesn't it? But there is. Um, whether or not that injury has been received, falling off a ladder, cleaning a window, crashing a 320-mile-an-hour dragster, or being shot at. Mm. Um there are incredible commonalities in terms of the way it makes you reassess yourself, issues you can have with mood control or all of those things. Um, so that's been an incredible journey. But I don't, I don't dwell on it because it's now filtered away with all the many other things that have in my 51 years had an effect. We've all got, we've all got those. Every life is an epic yeah. and every life has those huge moments that affect it and perhaps change the direction and then gradually fade away. Um, and then become woven into the fabric of it. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's, as you say, they become chapters and, and then you, you, yeah. write, you write the next one. Yeah. And you can be influenced and change as a person by having a 40th birthday, being married, being divorced, getting lost on a train when you're a kid. They, they all have an effect. They make us up. We are the function of a million, billion different moments, different jostling interactions between atoms. If you want to go that small about it, that's what we are. See, I would have never kicked you out of school, Richard. You're far too bright. You know, the, the, the no, no, honestly, I was the most 
irritating little twerp you've ever I'm, I'm surprised i lasted as long as i did in school there was one geography teacher used to throw me out his first action was always to open the door this is at Hill school when i was younger he would walk in morning hammond out what i haven't done anything yeah but you will get out yeah that was his first act morning hammond out what, um, what sort okay. of things would you do what would you be i'll just be annoying i was a cocky cocksure wise cracking smart alec little twerp never naughty enough to warrant being properly you know fired just <laughs> irritating really I really i'd hate to have taught me just go away and that's what they said <laughs> i don't blame them. i i did um I, there was a, i can't remember the name of the show now but there was a, a quiz show on for a little bit school's out and the idea was you were ask questions to which you would have known the answer when you were in school. Yes, yeah, so I remember this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Horrible three, show because it, it just reminds you how much you've forgotten. Well, exactly. Yeah. And there were three minor celebrities on the panel of which I was one. Um, and I was standing on, on the, this is many years ago, um, and I was waiting to do this show on telly, it'd be exciting, and there were two um, women alongside me. I can't remember who they were. They were, won't remember who I was. And the host was asking I'd said, right, we've, we've requested some of your early reports, and that's pertinent oh, no. to the show. So we're going to show these. And they showed the ones from the, the, the two contestants alongside me. And they were, oh, she's an absolute boon to the school, and her presence on the hockey pitch is mighty. And whatever. She'll doubtless go on and be a great artist or a fantastic business career. Mine was, Richard's continued difficult and obstructive attitude means his presence will soon no longer be required in the school. That was my report. Oh. And then, then six months later, and it was... I didn't know that I'd been in my report. I'd never seen it. I'd probably never even taken it home. Um, they were, even the, the studio audience were silent. It was genuinely embarrassing. Because they were, oh, she's, oh, he's clearly a bit of an idiot. We can't laugh. Please tell me you've got that report somewhere. I mean, that's framing that, on the toilet, isn't it? That's No, I haven't. I wish I still had it. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I should hunt it down. But it was the opposite of everybody else. There was a slightly chilly moment in the studio. It's a badge yeah. of honour. It's a badge of honour. Uh, Richard, you've, you've mentioned 51, your age, I think seven yes. times since we've been speaking. Is, is that... Is yeah, that, probably. Is it prominent in your thoughts? Do you think oh, about yeah. being 51 yeah. or not? Oh, yeah. Big old school midlife crisis going on right here. <laughs> yeah, loving it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, um, it's when you realise this is one way. Right. <laughs> it's, it's not until... It's literally, as I ticked over 51, oh, hang on, I'm only going in one direction here. Um, become suddenly aware of it. I think, I think, you know, midlife crisis, we joke about it, don't we? Why do we joke about it? It's not fair. No. You don't say, oh, look at you, you teenager. Look at you, you old age pensioner. Ha, ha. Well, we, we do say that about people having a midlife crisis, especially men. And I yes. think that's unreasonable because um, <laughs> it's terrifying. Is it? I mean, I'm 43, yeah. so I'm not far behind you. Oh, that's great. That's lovely. That's nice. <laughs> it's a good 40s, are brilliant. 40s are brilliant. 40s are brilliant. I think 30s are fabulous as well because if you think, when now, if you're in a meeting, wherever you are, at 31, chatting to somebody in a bar, at 31, you can say, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually um, doing a second degree. I'm still studying. Yeah. Or, yeah, I'm a bank manager in a provincial town. I've got two kids and a dog. Or, yeah, I set up my own business a couple of years ago. I've, I've got a yacht. You can be anything and everything. True. Which you couldn't 20 years ago. But by 31, you had to be you know, married, settled down, yeah, job done. Yeah. But now in your 30s, you can be whatever you like. And I think into your early 40s, it's just not what it was. But 50 is the first time you realise, oh, okay, 
maybe this is serious after all. That said, this is anybody else is grappling. If you are grappling with being 50 or 51, I was running through the woods opposite where I live. This was very much on my mind, thinking, oh, no. And then I was like, I've always wanted to be able to, I've aimed at being able to still go for a run when I'm 75. Wow, not, okay. I'm, I'm not, not competitive. Yeah. I mean, just trot around the woods. And for a while, I couldn't because I've smashed my left knee to bits in that car. But it, now, with a support on it, we just about hold up to run five miles around the woods. And I was doing that, and I thought, well, what, what if I came the other way now at 75? No, what if I did come the other way at 75? I'd look at me here at 51 and think, oh, you lucky what? You're just <laughs> yes. 51. Yeah. And then I thought, well, I am just 51, so I, that made me feel better. Good. Well, that's yeah. the way to do and it. I, th- I think there's maybe something useful in there. Take from it what you can. I'm, I'm look, I look to you as the guide, Richard. So, I mean, you know, this yeah, is Yeah, do, <laughs> do not do that. Do not do that. I'm very much not a natural leader of men, women, or anybody else. I'm, I'm, I, that's not my role. What is your role? Because I find you compelling, entertaining, fabulous company. I think, well, that's what, another thing that happens as you get through your 40s. You maybe begin to recognize who you are a little better. And I, I certainly accepted, right, I'm not a natural leader. I'm a really good follower. You, you'd want me next to you in the trenches to stand yeah. up and do stuff. I'm, 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 I'm hands on rather than, you know, I wouldn't be very happy just sitting there putting pieces around on the table and ordering people about I'm far better just getting stuck in. Good for you. Well, I mean, speaking of getting stuck in, it sort of naturally leads us onto the show, doesn't it? Now, I realise this is a conversation you'll have had with about 60 different people by now. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I don't mind it because I'm really pleased with this show and it was a big deal for us. It was exciting. Well, this is what I find so interesting, Richard, is, is that there feels, if you don't mind me saying so, I mean, there's, there's so much of you in, in everything you've done, of course. You know, even there's even so much of you in, in Wipeout where you're the voiceover. You know, you, your personality oh, carries... Show. Oh, it's a great <laughs> show. Yeah, but you know, your, your personality carries through in, in everything you've done. But this one, I think partly because, uh, you know, you it, it's you with a new face for us. I mean, we, we've all watched Mythbusters. I mean, I certainly have, so we're all aware of Tori. But, you know... It's not you with the usual two, shall we say. It's, it's a sort of solo vehicle in that sense, and there's lots of just you screen time. It's your production company, which makes me think, although this might not have been your brainchild, I bet you had a huge amount of input into the show's content and concept and how it was going to look and feel. Yeah, well, it, it was because I wanted to make a show. I did a show called Brainiac 100 years ago, uh, which was pop science, popular science, which was great because it was messing about and really stupid and silly and fun. But it, it was true to itself. It did have science at the core, at the heart of it. And I really wanted to recapture that. I knew I wanted to co-host it. I wanted somebody else with me. And I knew of Mythbusters, obviously, it's a big show. Um, and I got in touch with Tori through a friend of mine in L.A. because I'm exotic and well travel. And um, he agreed that, yeah, we should do a show together. That There's a natural fit there. We could sort of sense that. Uh, then we said, well, we need we need devise a circumstance in which Tori and I would be driven to resolve and solve day-to-day problems using basic science and engineering in the way that Mythbusters Brainiac did, but in a new way. And then we thought, well, if we'd been stranded on a desert island and we found the boat that had been shipwrecked, we could use that to build stuff to make our lives better. And then it sort of grew from there, really, because then we were thinking, well, we don't have to say why, do we? No, let's leave a bit of mystery as to what we were doing. And then we thought, well, if we script it, we can make it even richer. So it's ended up as this sort of hybridized 
show. It's a factual entertainment show about science, and and you can stand on the science. It's yeah. you can use it to homeschool your kids through lockdown on science. It's it's true, but. We dressed it up in this narrative arc, this story that drives through all six episodes. So every build, whether we're building a tank, a 12-meter water wheel, uh, whatever, whatever else we do, and the builds are huge. They have to be. It's an Amazon commission. They wanted scale and ambition. Um, so whatever we're building is driven by a need, is driven by a story. We, I think in about ep four, we go to war, we fall out. Yes. But because what we realized early on was chatting the idea through, the biggest problem we're going to face on that island given that we've resolved the problems of fresh water and food with a 45-second montage at the top of the yeah, first that, episode. that was brilliant how quickly that was taken. Yeah, that's just yeah, okay. yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, Bear Grylls makes such a fuss out of all of that stuff. What's, what's it's not deal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've done that. Now we're bored. That's the main problem is we're bored. So we've got to find ways of, of making our lives. I came up with a catchphrase. Okay. Everybody, everybody hates it. Ready? I said it in, in the pitch meeting because it, 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 my company, yes, and I took the idea to Amazon and pitched it. We don't just want to survive. We want to thrive. Oh, my word. That's yeah, that's, <laughs> it, 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 that's the noise everybody actually hurts a bit, doesn't it? It just set your teeth on edge, <laughs> it's, doesn't it? It's like the pedalo episode all over again. Yes. <laughs> it, actually, it actually hurts a little bit, doesn't it? Um, but it is about doing more than just surviving. It's about having a great life. Um, so it's, it's a bit of fun. I mean, I'm not making any big claims for it. Do not try and sue me, my production company, or Amazon Prime. If you find yourself shipwrecked on a desert island with only a copy of this show to refer to <laughs> on how to survive, because I don't know that it'll be very useful. However, um, it is valid. The science, the principles, the theories explained and explored within it are true. Uh, it had to have that. Well, it's also huge fun, Richard. I mean, it, you know, never That's mind the sort of lovely dynamism and the chemistry between you and and Tori. But but it's and that's all lovely and it's great. And I, I love the setup with the interrogation that happens throughout all the all all the all the episodes because you keep wondering, well, who is it that's got them? Why are they? Why are they having to speak to these two random people in a room that looks like it could be, you know, a prison? So there's always that that's kind of lingering in the background. But actually, the, the, the best thing about it is you turn this stretch of beach into a glorious adventure playground, you know, and, and it's just so Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're craving an audience's indulgence. The, the fact of the matter is we might be one of the few beneficiaries of the current situation, um, in this way at least, in that, yeah, we all crave escape right now. And this was, you know, the, the show was conceived, we came up with that about two years ago. Right. Um, so it was before pandemics and COVID and lockdowns. And the notion of escape is obviously something that chimes particularly resonantly with an audience right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and also the fact that because it's for Amazon, SVOD platforms, video on demand platforms, particularly Amazon, it's got to look big and yes. bright and bold. Yes. Normally, if I'm making a pop science show when I've done Brainiac, Last Lab, for the demonstrations, for the bills, I'm standing on. A, a rain-swept, disused airfield <laughs> on a grey day to <laughs> looking at something about the size of a shoebox. That will not do no. on a platform like Amazon. <laughs> this is a global platform. It's got to be big and bold and bright. It's got to look great. So we employed an amazing crew. Um, and Josh directing and Piers directing of photography. These are class acts. And you had and Richard, Richard Porter on the scripts as well, who, of course, we, we did. you've worked with for well, years. That was a, 
oh god yeah he was one of the first people I met it was one of the very first people I met when I went for the audition for Top Gear 24 however many years ago that is yeah well when we wrote it but Chimp my production company we're you know we're new we're fresh yeah and this is a really big show for us by the way lots of massive production companies are out there trying to get into Amazon Netflix all those guys and we go wandering in hello and get this huge commission then we went back to our offices right well I say offices it's one open plan office and we realised quickly if we're going to write this as much as we need to we've got to spend the money well it's got to look amazing on screen let's not leave it to chance let's script this thing we need somewhere to do that and I, I, I spoke to the people from whom we rent the office and it would have cost 20 grand to separate out a, like a conference room in my big open plan office. Oh. Oh, I've got that kind of money in the business. <laughs> so we bought a shed and we put the shed up. Didn't entirely tell the people we well, rented the office. Inside the brilliant. Yeah, we put the shed up in the big open plan production <laughs> office. And so that became the writing shed. So Richard Porter thankfully came along and helped us because he's, he's, he's extraordinarily good at that sort of thing um, and a few other writers and we all sat in the little shed around the table and, and wrote it that's wonderful what a lovely yeah, experience a writer's shed yeah yeah I'd, I'd like yeah. to I'd like to think that the writer's shed somehow made part of the build I, obviously it wasn't on the ship that was shipwrecked but you know maybe yeah. maybe it yeah I mean, it's a, it, it was the attitude that I think ran all the way through the show as well it was make do just make the best of it and we loved that shed it had a little light in it we even put some sponge around one end of it so I could record voiceovers in it hey, hey. but one of the early decisions on The Great Escape is I want I've always wanted to make a show with no voiceover a fact which right. is actually Hence surprisingly difficult. That makes sense. Well, then we thought, well, let's let's do this as a clearly after the event. So the interrogation, yeah, clearly it, it's throughout the series. It's two Panamanian police officers trying to find out just what the heck went on on that island. <laughs> and that is a story. It, look, it's a bit of fun. We are craving the viewers' indulgence. We are saying to you, look, come with us. This is daft. You can stand on us for the science. It's true. If we say something is the way it is, it is. Yeah. However, the rest of it is just utter nonsense and fun hope you enjoy it. it it's great fun and you're you're right this i mean i'm no expert scientist but for example and i don't want to give away too much because i think the viewers will will flog to it but for example i will you know what i mean and anyone that's seen it so far will know what i mean but there's a moment with balloons shall we say yes there's a, there's a lot of balloons and even yes. my basic science was like hang on you put that many balloons in that sort of space isn't that going to go bang <laughs> yeah so the yeah. way that was oh, it, timed was brilliant yeah we were rigorous about the whole thing it had to be you know that you can build any amount of nonsense but this this is in well pop science shows generally if the bedrock the foundations are true are right if the science is correct then you can build out from there and go anywhere and do anything stupid if it's not it'll never be daft enough <laughs> for me with brainiac with mythbusters those shows worked because they were you, you were pursuing some scientific end, yeah. something you wanted to find out or explore or demonstrate. Within that, you can be really crazy. But you've got the constraints of that stated aim. And likewise with this, if you, if you take that away and you're just saying, hey, come with us, we're going to be really stupid, you're never going to be stupid. You're never going to be daft enough. Yeah. You, you're broadcasting to people who are used to seeing, you know, unless there's a dragon coming out of the sky firing lasers from its eyes, I'm not going to be impressed. So you've got, it needs to have those constraints. Yeah. So 
we, we had to have, the science had to be right, and it is. And then the rest of it is utterly ridiculous and a bit of fun. <laughs> it's it's great it. fun. No, it is great fun. Can I ask you about kind of sense checking or safety checking some of these things? Because, of course, and again, I don't want to, I don't want to be the spoiler guy because there's there's so many gems in the, in the series that, I, I you know, I don't want to tell people what happens in episode three and so on and so forth because, I you know, they should find out. But there's a moment where you take to the skies... No. You, you yourself are a, a helicopter pilot. You have your own helicopter at home. And there's a, there's a, one of your inventions involves you being able to go into the skies. Can I just check? You weren't the only person that tested that out, presumably, that you had someone else that went up there before you did. Yeah, I mean, we very much learned our lesson um, as a production. That, <laughs> that I certainly am more aware than most that, just because you're on telly doesn't mean things can't go wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, we are. But the, the other thing I have in my favour now is because it's my company, when we're setting things up, you can see people thinking, oh, we can't really kill him now. Because <laughs> um, there's yeah. no company. So I, I feel a lot safer. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm a lot happier when I step out on set to do something now. <laughs> Plus, you might notice across the series, actually, generally speaking, if something dangerous is to be done, it's Tory doing it. It really and is. I, I, I didn't insist. That's just my team obviously realised, okay, one of these guys is the boss we see every day. One of these guys is lovely. And Tory, by the way, Absolutely, one of the nicest humans you could meet. I, I bet he comes across brilliantly. Um, but it, but they figured they could get by without him, so he can do the dangerous stuff. <laughs> Actually, on Tory, um, we'd we'd met and spoken, and then he came over to London and we did some development work on the show, and he stayed for a week and we had a great time. But really, it wasn't until I got onto the island, and it, this is a proper deserted island, because we realised we can't. We can't be standing there moaning about being stuck on an island and the windsurfer goes past. Yeah, yeah. So we yes. took the ridiculous decision of basing ourselves on a remote, deserted island off Panama. So it's the real deal. Great. And it wasn't until I got onto the beach, moment one, day one, scene one, action, facing Tory, I realized, wait a minute, we've never actually worked together. What if it doesn't <laughs> work? What if it, and then I've got I've brought I've shipped seventy odd people I don't know how many containers out to this island spent millions of pounds doing this and it might not work. Yeah. Thankfully, from second one it became obvious. Oh yeah, this is going to work. He was he's I mean he steals a lot of the show. I'll be honest, but I don't know. But he really he really does own a lot of it. It's, no, it's there's the the, the chemistry between the two of you. I mean, you know this. You made the show. You were there. You've watched it. I'm, I'm sure many times. The chemistry between the two of you is infectious. It's lovely when you're getting on. When you're not getting on, it works very very nicely. You know there's well, a great there, there is a real friendship, and you can tell, can't you? I mean, yeah. We are intelligent when we watch stuff and we can see it. And yeah, we are mates. I mean, we talk a lot on the phone. I adore the guy. He's just I was heartbroken when we left. Seven weeks together on the island, all this. <laughs> Yeah. And the day when we had to break break it all down and go home, I was sobbing like a baby. It was really hard because we built our own little world together. All of us. There is and a come down, isn't there? Down. People, people yeah. don't realise this out of the performing world. People don't realise that actually when you've done something and something as intense as that was seven weeks on yeah. this you know, remote space, you do sort of, you, you need that mental time to readjust to what is the next chapter, whatever the next thing is, you know, even if it's just going home, which is lovely seeing the family, etc. But still, you do grieve the adventure that you've just had, don't you? You do. And also, you, you lead an entirely selfish life. So for seven weeks, I only half adjusted my body clock, which I do a lot when I go that way around the world, because that way, I bounce out of, I, we, we had huts to live in, so I live in my little hut. I'd wake up half four, um, 
do a few emails because of the time difference right. with home, and then I could go out for a, a little run. I don't, I'm nothing heroic, believe me, it was a trot around the <laughs> island, um, and then still be down for breakfast at half six, still be on set at quarter to seven. We'd film all day. It got dark fairly early, so then we'd have a meeting post-filming day, go through it. I'd be in bed by half eight. Yeah. And then up again at half four. Yeah. But I only had to think from the second I woke to the second I went to sleep about my job. Right. And everybody else had to do the same. You do. That's all you're thinking about. Yeah. Uh, even if your job is support, it's still your job. Yes. So yes. how can I support this production? How can I contribute to it? How can I make it work well? That's it. Then you come home and suddenly there's all these other people who matter. Yeah. And it's... <laughs> Well, what? Why am I going to? Why am I going to? Why am I not make a noise? Because what? what? Yeah. All these other people that matter more than you. And I think I, I quite like to go and decompress somewhere for a, a few days before I get home. <laughs> That's what I maybe I needed some sort of chamber at the bottom of the garden. We we'll get the shed. Just shift the shed yeah. from the studio. Ship the shed from yeah. the office yeah, and go and office. sit in there and decompress. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, the great escapist, it's, it's huge fun. Thank you for making it. I'm sure you've heard that from lots of people. It is a tonic. Well, that's, I, I couldn't hear anything better. I, I really hope people enjoy it. Take it as it's meant, which is, look, this is a bit of fun. There is science in it. You can look for it. But above all else, come with us on the ride and enjoy it. And that's, that's what I really want from it. Good. And what's next for you? Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. I mean, my, my job is based on travel, isn't it? So we'll just have to see when we, can, when we can go out. I've been 24 years living out of a suitcase. And the suitcase has stayed under my bed for nearly a year now. So I don't know. But we'll be back out there again. And despite being the grand old age of 51, you're still some oh. off, still some way off the vaccine. So, you know. Yeah. 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 Although I was invited for my flu jab the other day. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm that age. Oh, yeah. But I, and I will, they are doing over 50s, aren't they? That's me. <laughs> well, no, you, you can laugh at 43. Imagine how that feels. I had to have one. It, if it makes you feel any better, I've, I've already had my flu jab. So, you know. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. I've got to go get mine. You, you've got to go. I've got a very pregnant wife, so I needed to have it so that I can make oh, sure. Oh, heck, that, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where? Oh, well, good luck. Thank you very good much. Good luck with that. Number All three incoming. Is. Yeah, thank you. Oh, yeah. I, I, I can lend you a book that explains why it keeps happening because that's going to get expensive. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. Just saying. That would well, be... good luck with that. Thank you very much. And thank you so much for your company. It's been a really great hour. I'm, I'm really appreciate it. I know you have to thank go. Thank you for yours. Thanks for having thank me on. Thank you very much, Richard. Take care. All the very best. Nice to talk to you. And you. Take care. See Take you again care. one day. I hope so. Bye-bye. The Andy J Podcast. Well, there we go. A whole hour with the hamster. I don't think he'll mind me calling him that. Listen, Richard was great company. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. I hope you enjoyed listening to him. I hope you've learned a bit about him as well. I must say, and I, I can tell you this as well, he sent me the nicest message after our chat. And sometimes the celebrities do do that. Sometimes people do reach out and say really nice things. And sometimes, obviously, you, you know, they just completely ignore you and they move on to the next thing. Richard was very kind and, and very charming in his uh, reaction after we spoke. And it was uh, a very nice touch. Very cool of him. So greatly appreciate. I hope you've enjoyed that. Please do check out our back catalogue of Celebrity Conversations. We have absolutely masses of star names for you to go back and listen to. If it's car skewing that you're into, then we've got Nico Rosberg, Formula One 2016 world champion. We've got James May. We've got Jeremy Clarkson, amongst others. And of course, if you love your celebrities, we've got the likes of Darren Brown and... Uh, 
Katie Mellower and David Baddiel and Jason Isaacs and Miriam Margulies and, well, just masses and masses of really huge, brilliant, fantastic celebrity names who are so engaging and so open with us. So I would really encourage you to check out some of our previous conversations or all of them. Subscribe to the show. Check it out. Next week, we've got three fantastic celebrities coming up for you, including a hilarious and really, really interesting chat with Rod Gilbert, the comedian. So I would love you to stick around for that as well. And for all things automotive, I'd love to direct your attention to the Driven Chat podcast. It's myself and my two buddies, John Markar, who is a marvellous man of cars, and the wonderful Amy Shaw, who is an automotive photographer par excellence. And we have a celebrity guest or a very, very keen automotive legend every week, the likes of Mike Brewer and Magnus Walker and Drew Pritchard and various other very cool, interesting people. Sometimes we even get to do them at the incredible place, the mecca of automotive, Caffeine and Machine. And we've had some fabulous guests there joining us in the Driven Chat truck. So if you love all things cars and automotive, Driven Chat is the place to be. And if you're into your celebrities, stick around with us here on the Andy J podcast. Thank you for your company. Have an excellent week. We'll be back with another episode next week. If you're enjoying the Andy J podcast, we'd love a review. In fact, if you're enjoying the show, why not tell your friends? Podcasts live and die on, well, often word of mouth. So please tell your friends. Like, subscribe, review and share. Thank you.